Hello, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, hosted by me, Jack Perks. Professionally, I'm a wildlife cameraman, but I dabble in podcasting, and each Tuesday we release an episode as I have a chat with scientists, artists, filmmakers, and passionate people all about nature in a light-hearted and certainly not serious way. Welcome back to the Bearded Tits podcast. We're back for season three. We've got a great set of episodes coming up. Lots of unusual topics and guests. And the guests aren't that unusual. Well, maybe one or two of them. And it's going to be a great one. So I've tried to go back to what the podcast used to be, which was me talking bollocks to people about things I'd like to talk about. We will still do some outdoor broadcasts uh, on my own where I'm just talking about things I want to find. But I think we're going to try and go back to what we used to used to be like. It's been lovely to meet so many people during the kind of hiatus as well who said they missed the podcast and really enjoy it. So it's always nice to meet people when they say that because it makes me think, yeah, I probably should carry on doing this sort of stuff. Now, as always, we're completely unfunded. There's no money that comes in except for buymeacoffee.com. So if you are feeling particularly generous, it costs five pounds. That's the price of a pint. If you'd meet me in a pub and you'd buy me a pint, why not send me buy me a coffee? Dot com. There's a link below in the description and you can donate to help keep this podcast going. Without any funds, the podcast cannot carry on. We are in a weird kind of nexus at the moment with the podcast in that we, we're doing okay. We're not, we're not a bad podcast, but we're not quite high enough to garner sponsorship. So until I can get money for the pod from that, I'm completely reliant on buy me a coffee. So if you've never done it before, you've enjoyed the podcast, I, I'm, I've got my hat holding out to you please can you chuck a few coppers in there to help keep it going what i normally do is i read out the messages that people leave in there as well so if you want to leave a little note or a message i'll read that out in an upcoming podcast if you can do that that'd be great if you can't do that no worries enjoy the pod one of the things i've tried to do this season is pre-record lots of podcasts throughout the year so you'll notice that the timeline's a bit skew whiff on this and We've got episodes that happened in the spring and the summer, and it just means that we could talk about a much wider away, away? array of subjects, particularly in person. So today's episode, I went to Annick in Northumberland, and I went to the Poison Garden, somewhere I've always wanted to visit. It was incredible. I met Ray the Gardener. I don't know his surname. I know his name was Ray, and he was a gardener, so that's what we're calling him. He was incredibly knowledgeable. If you have never been to Annick Gardens and you've never visited the Poison Garden, I highly recommend it. It doesn't cost anything once you're into it. You have to pay to go in the gardens. But once you're in there, you just book a slot and you can go visit all these fantastic macabre plants. It is well worth a visit if you're in the area. Here's our chat. Oh, hello. Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks. And today you find me in Annick Gardens in Annick in Northumberland and I've come here to see a very macabre and unusual garden which is the Poison Garden, something that I've heard about for many years, I've always wanted to visit and I'm up here in the area anyway so I've decided to swing in. It's home to hundreds of poisonous and deadly plants. So I'm meeting Ray the Gardener, that's his full title, and he's going to give me a little tour and talk about some of these weird 
and wonderful plants. I will warn you that there are people walking around, there's a fountain in the background, so there's a little bit of ambient noise, but it all adds to the character of the pod. So please bear with me if we do get the odd crying child and on right on bloody cue as we're recording. Well, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. And today I'm at Annick Garden and we're in the Poison Garden. I'm joined by Ray the Gardener. Sorry, I don't know his surname, but we're joined by Ray. Yeah. Ray, what is the Poison Garden and what, what are we looking at? Right, okay. Well, the entrance to the Poison Garden, it's it's locked at all times. You're locked when you're in there and it's, it's locked just to prevent people from wandering around. And it's not really because of the poison plants. It's actually because we have um, controlled substances in there, such as a, a Class C catharidulis, which is a cat. It's like amphetamine or speed. We have Class B cannabis. Bottom of the garden, and we have uh, Salvia divinorum, the Sage of the Diviners, uh, which is under the Psychoactive Substances Act. So we're allowed to grow these under licence from the Home Office as long as they're in cages and as long as everybody's accompanied around the poison garden at all times. So you, there's a, a genuine fear someone might come in and try and have a good time with these plants? It's, uh, it's, it's one of those regulations. It's not such a problem with that now. It was in the early days when we did have people coming in uh, to the poison garden were trying to steal the cannabis. Let's wait for the lawnmower and the low-flying plane now. They're normally the... Well, we, we, do, get, we do get the helicopters in, and the planes going over there from the, the near, uh, okay. nearby airfield. <laughs> OK, so, yes, we did have a problem with people coming in in the early days. However, just about everybody knows someone who knows someone who knows a phone number and there's really no need to come in to break into no, the okay. because it's, it's that easy to obtain... Okay. So I'm led to believe. Okay. <laughs> well, look, I'm dying. The, the gate's currently locked. Right, okay. Can well, we, can we... I've got a key, Okay, yes. that's good. That's so a good start. These gates the, um, have the These Plants Can Kill, which is no idle boast, because no. they can. Skull and crossbones on it, um, which is the, the crossbones actually going through the skull, which is a symbol of poison, unlike the pirate flag, which a lot of people sort of associate with that, which is actually the skull more or less sat on top of the crossbones. So oh, there, there's okay. A so the gates themselves they were made specially to match the two pillars. So these gates have the poisonous asp, yeah. they have uh, poison ivy on it, and on the other side there, just out of view, is the oversized black widow spider. But the pillars are really interesting, so I'm just going to lock it in now. Yeah, yeah, no, we don't, we don't want anyone wandering there we in. are with a very theatrical crash. <laughs> so, down at the bottom there. Uh, so they were made at the Regent's Forge in 1823. Uh, they were made for the Duke of Northumberland. These... There's a pair of pillars, there is another pair, and they actually formed a suspension bridge that crossed the River Alm, and it went from the dairy ground to the dairy. So in other words, the Duke of Northumberland at that time went all this trouble and expense in getting these made basically for suspension bridge for, the, for his <laughs> dairy herd. But you've repurposed them? We've repurposed <laughs> them, and I'm not too sure where the other two are. And on the top, uh, there is like this archway with, with the poison garden written on it, which is about sort of you know, eight foot wide, and two cones if you like at the top where in the autumn time especially for halloween we'll have uh, sort of like um flames coming out okay which is just steam but with the colored lights wow and a coffin <laughs> a coffin okay yep. which is donated by a very famous um funeral uh, company uh, so obviously touting for a bit of business <laughs> should things go wrong but what really gives it away its purpose is this slot in here because we'll open it up oh god what we're going to find there it is. Oh. <laughs> Nothing more glamorous than an old um, catering 10-litre bucket. And it's got some coins in there because 
it is a collection box. And do you do you not charge for people to come in then? No, it's all in, all included in the, the oh. garden ticket. Price. Oh, okay, that's brilliant. So it's not for the Poison Garden Guide's Christmas Party Fund, <laughs> hand and heart. Okay, it's for this, which is which is a, a topic which is actually very dear to the Duchess's heart, and it's because of the Annick Gardens Trust's drug awareness work. Right. Because Northum well, not Northumberland, but the northeast of England has the highest number of drugs-related deaths really per capita population out the whole of England for about the umpteenth year running. So everything about the garden as a whole is charitable. Uh, they don't make a profit, it makes a surplus, so everything goes back in into funding projects yeah. for, for the elderly and uh, uh, the elderberries as we, we call them here. <laughs> um, but the poison garden itself, the reason is we actually employ a full-time drugs education officer. So she goes around the schools goes around the, the universities even, so we get the first year undergraduates coming in here, and then we can do a special tour tailored for them. Really from kids up age, from the ages of five and upwards. So we tell them all about the, the opium, that opium poppies that we have in here, which obviously goes on to make heroin, and um, the controlled substances that I met before. Just hoping that sort of filters through to them a little bit. Well, what we don't do is we don't stand up and say, it's illegal, it's a class B drug, yeah. you'll get a lot of time in prison, because then they've just switched off. Yeah. We tell them um, the type of, of cannabis, for instance, that they'll most likely come into contact with, a skunk, and about how that can lead to sort of very serious mental health conditions. Yes, yeah, yeah. And we give them the facts, and basically, if we get one or two of them thinking, then, you know, they can uh, make their own sort that's, of informed choices. Yeah, that's all you can do, I guess, isn't it, is, is influence. Um, Absolutely. So what, what about the history of the garden? Because I, I literally know, know nothing about it. So when, when was it started and who started it? Okay, well, the, uh, the original garden dates back to the 1750s. Oh, wow. And it was created by a guy called Hugh Smithson, Sir Hugh Smithson. Now, he married um, one of the Duke's daughters, and basically that line of dukedom, if you like, was going to die out. So he was created the first Duke of Northumberland at the third creation. The two previous dukedoms had died out. And if the name Smithson rings a bell, then it is because um, his family is behind the Smithsonian Museum um, in, in America, oh, and hence wow. the Smithsonian TV channel. That's incredible. So so anyways, big, na big natural history connection. Yeah. Then. So there's been many gardens on site. Each duke had their own ideas yeah. about what they wanted. This is something like the seventh garden on site. The original garden is something like two metres underneath. <laughs> and uh, this came about um, because the present Duke and Duchess weren't in line to be Duke and Duchess. It, they only came to uh, Ralph Percy on the death of his older brother, Harry. So he, of course, had the castle to look after. He had Northumberland Estates. And the Duchess was sort of, you know, what does a Duchess do? So she was through here, walking through with the, do with the dogs, and basically at that time it was little more than a, a tree nursery because the garden went into serious decline after the Second World War. Tree nursery, builders' yard. And that's when she had this sort of revelation. And that was to turn it into a showcase for Northumberland, an employer and a tourist attraction. And she set about sort of planning this. So it took something like five years to plan uh, and to get through all the planning permissions. And um, it was opened in, well, Building's Work started March 2000, and it was opened to the public the first stage in October 2001. So really quite comparatively quick. Yeah, not that, not that long no. open, really, no. is it? And of course, the stars of the show were all, all these poisonous plants, with, <laughs> and the kid in the background, of Oh, course. yes. <laughs> um, how many have you got? How many, how many species of poisonous plants? Well, have we over got? the course of a season, there could be well over 100 plants come. Okay. You know, because you know, the, the spring bulbs die away. It'll vary. Flowers, yeah. And then yeah, the, yeah. the summer flowers come up. 
to what we say and I can assure you listeners that is not someone being dragged out the poison garden <laughs> but you know some of us might wish no no it can't be horrible to kids right no. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah um, we do give people a, a, a warning at the, at the beginning of the tour outside the gates basically it's don't touch don't yep. taste and at yep. the height of summer we'd also say don't smell you'd like to think they're obvious but I guess you can't <laughs> you can't well, assume you, you say not everybody sort of tunes in yeah okay. all the time okay. and so okay. there has been a case and I'll I'll show you the picture yeah, we... when we go down okay, okay. the one that you shouldn't smell okay it's then perfectly harmless now okay then okay but the first one that we say here uh, it's this magnificent uh, laburnum tree or, or golden rain. Look, looks a bit like wisteria. Are well, they same it, family or not? I'm not too sure of that, okay, but okay. Um, it could well have the same sort of okay. alkaloids and poison. So that yeah. is actually the second deadliest tree in Britain. Wow. Yep. So the, the, the problem with that is once these lovely golden yellow flowers go, yeah. um, they're only there for one reason, and that is to attract the pollinators. And Which is the lo- bees. There's loads yeah. of bees around, isn't there? Yeah. As soon as it's pollinated, that's it. That's the job done. Plants, trees and shrubs are very ruthless with our resources. It will drop the flowers and it will start going into reproductive mode and it'll produce seeds which will grow in little pods and you can see how, how low this one grows. Yeah. It is about sort of just three foot off the ground. Yeah. So it doesn't need to be a very old child to reach up and pick them because they do grow and they're very similar, they look very similar to garden peas, at least to a kid that age. And for a kid that age, one or two pods worth of those peas and the child could be vomiting for 12 hours frothing at the mouth wow. and the giveaway with laburnum poison is the pupil in one eye is much larger than the other it's oh. a medical condition called anisocoria but it's such an obvious set of symptoms last kid to die by eating these seeds was back in the 70s but the poison that's in this is called cytine it is a nicotine analog that means it's very similar to nicotine but not identical but it is similar enough for people to take the leaves of laburnum dry them and smoke them and that's okay? You're okay to do that? Or is that going <laughs> to... I, I wouldn't recommend it. I'm, no, I'm not, okay. I'm not a smoker myself. Okay, but okay. It has been used in the past. But it's not going to poison them? Well, it depends on your well, definition of smoking, I guess, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it'll give you all sorts of lung conditions. Yeah, okay, okay. But the thing is, you'll also find sightseeing in an anti-smoking drug. Oh, wow. Uh, and I won't mention its name, but it's, it's, it's a tablet. <laughs> okay. And basically, you're taking a very small, carefully controlled dose of a poison. And the effects of that poison, the intoxication of sightseeing going around your bloodstream mimics that of nicotine. Wow. But because it's not nicotine, it's not addictive. And because it's a tablet, it gets out of the behavioural aspect. Ah. It's incredible. Absolutely But it's been very popular since Georgian and Victorian times. But what we're finding now is a lot of people are taking them out because the trees are obviously very mature now. And that's starting to grow over walls, into main streets, into next door's gardens, and, and people are just sort of worried about the consequences. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I can see a few kind of flowers in in um, full bloom now. I mean, what, what's the best time of year to visit the Poison Garden? Well, <clears throat> all year, because, I mean, um, from February onwards, uh, you start getting the, the snowdrops, and the snowflakes come a little bit after that. A snowdrop? I did not know snowdrops were poisonous. Oh, snowdrops, yes, all spring flower and bulbs are poisonous. Really? And the most poisonous of all is the bluebell. Is that uh, right? Yeah. So it, there will be fatal if you eat the bulbs, but the thing is, people only become poisoned um, if they mistake it for something else. So that is why there's not many people who die because of bluebell poisoning. But right. you'll find people become ill because they've consumed the bulbs of daffodils because right. they're large and brown. 
A bit like an onion. A bit like an onion. Mm. And you know that old phrase, you know, this, the gardener, he's a guy who certainly knows his onions. Well, that may well be because he's got an untidy shed and he can go in. He knows what, he, where, what his onions are. But if he sends his kid in or his grandkid who yeah. doesn't know gets one or two daffodil bulbs in and you know that will give is that where that came from that makes a lot of oh, probably likely where it came from probably likely yeah it makes sense there is another one as well we've got the willow tree here um right. which could be actually it'll be could be the sources of two sort of um well-known scenes okay because in salix alba the salicylic acid is in the bark because that prevents the wood boring insects going in yeah but salicylic acid is also found in warts and broker treatments corn plasters and um, skin cleansers. Right. But if it's taken orally, it does reduce pain and inflammation because it is the precursor to aspirin, right. which is synthesized from that in 1897. So prior to that date, people would have to take the bark from the willow tree, literally strip the willow. Right, okay. So the reason it's in here is because strength of the acid is unknown uh, and people didn't really know how much to take. You know, whether it was a 50 pence piece worth, an A4 sheet of paper or a fist size, whatever. So people were overdosing on it. And overdosing on this has the same consequences as aspirin. Thins the blood, inhibits the clotting factor, um, but can cause gastrointestinal bleeding. Wow, so not a nice way to go if you get a lot of that. But we had somebody in, he was from the, the travelling community, and he said they used what they call the rule of thumb. Now, we've all heard of the rule of thumb, yeah. but he actually demonstrated for the benefit of the other guests that were in. So what he did was he put his... His forearm, if you like, vertical, uh -huh. with the thumb extended. Yeah. And he said they take a strip from the elbow to the tip of the thumb and then the width of the thumb. And then that's that long strip, you know, about two foot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which actually, when you think about it, is really very sustainable because You're not if you kill the tree from around you? that way, you know, um, horizontal, it would, it would kill the tree. Yeah. So obviously, you know, they, they, they had, had that and that was just a general sort of... Um, the general rule of thumb that makes that. sense yeah 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 it does make sense i mean you, you must get assets all the time but is there a deadliest i mean how do you quantify what's the deadliest well or? exactly because <laughs> um when we have kids on the tour um we always say to them what does anybody know want want to know the most poisonous uh, yeah. plant in the garden yeah go, oh, yes 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 and that's it right we've got two okay. we've got one the most deadly plant in the garden is in terms of the number of people killed Okay. Or the most gruesome way to die. Which one do you want to know? <laughs> Nine towns out of ten, they want to know the most gruesome. Of course way to they die. do. Of course yep. they do. The children. Yep. So that's that's a little bit further down. Okay. So we can always come back to other stuff. I'm conscious that we might skip things, but we can um, we can always come back on ourselves. Okay. Well, this one in the cage here. Okay. And uh, it's a plant that's about maybe sort of 18 inches tall. Lovely sort of red stem on it. Wow. And. Um, the leaves on it which are a bit like a chestnut if you like yeah uh, which is quite apt because in the autumn time it will produce sort of little spiky red conker pods and inside those conker pods are the seeds and they're the seeds of the castor bean ricinus communis now that might ring a bell ricinus that is where ricin comes from right. it's also where castor oil comes from so what they used to do was they used to boil the, the seeds and the castor oil would flow to the top and that was a bit of a cure-all for everything in the day in fact it was even added to a certain brand of motor engine oil hence hence that particular name but if you're a chemist you have the equipment you have the know-how then you can um, take what's left of that husk and it will yield four percent ricin right now that doesn't sound a lot but we have a plaque on the wall um, which is the umbrella murder and that was of georgie markov in london 1979 the amount of ricin that killed him was the equivalent in size to two grains of salt jesus so we got about 15 plants in here and 
each plant easily could produce sufficient ricin to kill about a thousand people. Bloody so there's hell. a thousand deaths in that in that cage. It doesn't have to be in a cage. It's it's not a plant that's illegal to grow. Um, so you could have that in your garden. You could have that. But well, you, you'd have to be a chemist to do that. You the would whole, have okay. to be a chemist. Okay, yeah. okay. So I would think actually, if you were a chemist with certain political or ideological affiliations, and you suddenly started taking an interest in growing rice as communist <laughs> and ordering the, the the equipment, then you may well just come to the attention of security services. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. The thing that immediately springs to my mind, which is more pop culture, is it used in Breaking. I don't know if you watch Breaking Bad, but in in the popular series Breaking Bad. They use ricin a couple of times. That's right, that. yes. Well, uh, I'm going to sort of um, bust a couple of myths in Oh, go one. on then, yeah. Because uh, it, it, was, it was put in the sugar. So that means it was going to be stirred into hot tea, which would have destroyed the ricin. Oh. And especially, I think it was also put in the cigarette. Well, that would definitely destroy it. Right. It has to go okay. into the bloodstream. Hence, Georgie Markov, it was fired into his leg uh, with a pellet, so it went into his bloodstream in that way, and then basically... Uh, destroyed all the proteins in his in his body cells and so basically he was just if you like disintegrating once it's in you that's it there's no cure so that's it. so if you've got that you're gone absolutely really yeah. wow yeah what a uh horrific yeah that's the I, I vaguely remember the umbrella in a murder i couldn't remember when it was but yeah, yeah that's, well it's uh, very james bond style it operation, is isn't it? Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, um, yeah the pellet that was used to um to be fired into his leg uh came from a pocket watch it was only one and a half millimeters in diameter Laser drilled, um, and wow. if you're ever lucky enough to get invited into Scotland Yard's Black Museum, then you can actually see that pellet under a microscope. Wow, that's incredible! So this is the most horrific way to go. No, that is that, that's, that's the most the numbers. Most deadly, okay, yeah. so what's what? the most horrific? Okay, well, I'm getting into I mean, it now. <laughs> I mean, we all have our own favourites, but but yeah. this one's my favourite. So, okay. Uh, it's quite prolific. You'll see it a lot of, on riverbanks. Yeah. And the reason it's grown here quite well is because this is the lowest point in the garden. Very yeah. sandy soil, so there's a lot of water uh, just below the, the water table. So at the moment, it's only about sort of uh, two foot high. Um, looks very much like it could be grown um, parsley or, or yeah. carrots or something like that. And that is because the water drop hemlock is a member of the carrot family. Okay. So, a couple of cautionary tales on this plant about uh, the dangers of foraging with very little knowledge. So when the plant is about sort of four foot tall, it'll produce these white um, umbellifers, as they're called, and that's where people mistake them for something else. We had one lady in, in here who uh, mistook the, the flowers for Angelica, and she took a bite of the flower. Not a nibble, but a bite. In, that, in, in the poison no, garden? No, not in here. This oh, is I was going to say, no. if there's one place you don't take a bite no. of a plant, it's the poison no, garden. Sorry. So these are no, okay. ex external. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so go on, she, go on. Yeah, she took a bite, and that numbed her throat for 20 minutes. But more deadly was a, a family that went camping. This was in the Scottish newspapers about sort of six or seven years ago. And they went foraging on the basis that everything found out in the countryside is natural, healthy, wholesome and harmless. Well, it's not. <laughs> and in fact, this particular plant in Northern Ireland is called the poisonous parsnip because the root does look very much like a, poison, uh, like a parsnip. Right. And this family found it, took it home, took it to that, that caravan, campervan, tent, chopped it up, put it in the evening curry. Thank goodness somebody didn't like that curry because, and was able to get them help because had they not, this is what would have happened. It paralyzes you in exactly the same way and kills you exactly the same way as uh, Socrates was killed, but he was using the, the less poisonous poison hemlock. Right. This, believe it or not, is even more poisonous. <laughs> so it poisons your leg, paralyzes your leg. So first of all, they wouldn't have been able to move. Right. They wouldn't have been able to walk to help. Then it would have paralyzed their arms so they wouldn't be able to use their phone. Paralyzed their voice, they wouldn't have been able to shout for help. And that is only the first three hours. 
The remaining three hours of their life, uh, they would just be sitting there waiting to die as one by one all their internal organs start shutting down. Oh. And they would be having ex uh, an extremely heightened sense of awareness as what's happened because some of the alkaloids in there sort of, you know, make, put the brain on sort of overdrive if you like. Yeah. So you're fully aware that you're going to die and there's nothing that you can do about it. What happens is you, be, you get that much pain, you're actually drawn up into a ball um, because, you know, the pain is so extreme and uh, you're really curled up in like a fetal position. And when they find you, they will have to literally snap tendons and ligaments to straighten you out to put you in the coffin. Jeez. And what's really gruesome is that the muscles on your face will be drawn in and you'll die with a horrible rictus grin on your face. Wow. That's incredible, isn't it? So that, that is, in my, in my uh, opinion, the, uh, the, the most dangerous plant. Quite creepy. It's a very creepy yes. way to go, isn't it? Yeah. I think what's surprising is I, I was expecting to see like lots of tropical things and, and weird, but a lot of this I'm recognising, like, oh, I've, I've, in fact, some of it I've got in my own garden, like foxgloves. I'm seeing foxgloves pop up. I've got those in my garden. You know, it, it's incredible how much of this is... Presumably quite a few native British plants here, is there? Well, um... Or plants you find in, in the UK, Absolutely, anyway. yeah. I mean, we've... Um, most of the plants are native to Britain. The most sort of recent income to Britain is giant hogweed, which has only yeah. been in the past 200 years. So you got that in the garden? We've got that in the garden. Oh, that's looking, a, because I, because I spend a lot of time by rivers, so I'm always very conscious oh, of, well, of dodging... I, uh, I'll, be, I'll be able to give you one tip as to how to recognise it. Oh, OK. That'd be very helpful. The thing about giant hogweed is... In wow. Fact, that is also a member of the carrot family as well, believe it or not. It's enormous. I mean, it's got giant in the name, so it's probably a big clue, but that is enormous. Yes. Yeah. So the thing about giant hogweed is it's very easy to recognise when it's giant. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, twice the height of an adult. Wow. So that, very easy to, to, to give it away. But the thing is, when it's young and when it's about a year old, you know, they'll not all be like that. I mean, this really is a magnificent <laughs> specimen. It, but it's they, a beautiful plant, but yeah. It, it actually... It exudes a bit menace, I think. Yeah. But you say, again, people get attacked, if you like, by it because they mistake it for cow parsley. Yeah. Which you find down any typical British country lane. There are differences, of course, um, but people who aren't aware of this and see something like this, then they could well walk through it. And if you notice the stems, they have like little whiskers on them. Yeah, quite, quite so, hairy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So those are like the stings that you find on nettles. Uh, they're oh, made right. of like a silica type material. So even just brushing against that's oh, yeah. going to hurt. Okay. It, that, well, what it does is it'll um, snap the end and it'll create a jagged edge. Right. And that's what punctures the skin. Um, because they're hollow, like the needle of a hypodermic syringe, you'll be injected with a very actually sophisticated poison. It's a poison that actually changes the DNA on your skin very locally so that your skin is unable to protect itself from ultraviolet light. So the burns and blisters that you get from that is caused by severe sunburn. Now it takes your skin several years to repair, so during that period of recovery, you would have to have those wounds totally covered. Otherwise, you get the burns and blisters all over again. Did you say years to, re yes. to repair? Yes. My God. So you could just be taking a casual walk, maybe walking your dog or something, brush against that, and that is years of your life affected by one plant. That's right, yes, yes. It's incredible, and it's, so it's not the sap or anything inside. Then that's well, it is in the sap as well because okay, we, okay. when we're doing the tours, we, we have two pictures. One is a, is a guy who's been stung, and it really does look like really large, angry red welts, but similar to sort of nettle stings, but really deep red. So that is severe sunburn. But we also have another picture of a young girl who was actually snapping the branches. Right. So oh she God. was getting the juice in a more concentrated form, and she had 
blisters on her you know they were sort of five or six inches across wow so she could well have sort of you know um scars for life that's incredible but yeah it's not just humans that get attacked by this dogs as well oh yeah of course because you know especially now see these leaves over here yeah this one's you know lying just off off the surface very low isn't it uh, so if you've got a dog and it's on the long lead and you don't know where it's snuffling around yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it could well crawl underneath but more dangerously is it walks over the top the belly. dogs have little very little fur on their bellies yeah, and yeah, yeah, last yeah. year was a good year for giant hogweed bad year for everybody else <laughs> we heard a lot of horrible stories with dogs that had to be put down oh it's that bad oh yeah oh. well they get exactly the same burns and blisters yeah yeah it's yeah, a, yeah. A greater portion of their body area wow now the one that's next to it here uh, rhododendron yeah that's quite a common garden plant, absolutely isn't it? yeah um, one of the three biggest killers of domestic livestock in Britain, along with the yew tree and the cherry laurel. But the um, rhododendron is one of the few plants that can make ruminants truly vomit. So we're talking about sheep, goats, cattle. Because ruminants, as you may or may not know, have several stomachs. Yeah. They tend to regurgitate their food. And uh, <laughs> it's very rare that a farmer seen, sees their livestock being ill in that respect. Yeah. However, if they've had access to rhododendron, and they'll only eat it if as a sort of food a last resort yeah they will vomit wow. but according to a farmer friend of mine the results will be explosive <laughs> now it has um, a toxin in it which is present in all parts of the plant and also in the pollen so that means any bees that make honey entirely from the flowers of rhododendron that honey will be poisonous but it's poisonous in a psychoactive way so much so that in uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, um, it's actually sold as uh, it's called Delibal, which translates roughly into raving honey. <laughs> but more picturesquely are the mad honey collectors of Nepal who will literally drop a ladder down from you know, two or three hundred feet and uh, there'll be a fire at the bottom, smoke to pacify the bees. And on those cliff faces, the bees will make the honeycombs on the cliff faces. So these guys have like 20-foot pools with a saw blade on the end. They have a 20-foot pool with a basket. So they're holding on to that great height with a crook of one knee because, you know, one knee's holding the basket yeah. and the other two's manipulating the pool. And the honeycomb just chops into the basket. And they're no sooner down at the bottom than they're tucking into it because it does give a cannabis-type high. Really? If they can resist the temptation, they will filter it, they will bottle it, they will market and sell it because in this world, age of worldwide trade and commerce, you can buy anything from anyone from anywhere in the world. We're walking through a tunnel of ivy. Why, why is this here? Well, this is Irish ivy. It's not poison ivy. Poison ivy just isn't allowed in Britain. Uh, so we've got Irish ivy because it's a broadleaf, grows very quickly. The English ivy is a, is a smaller, but ivy is poisonous if you eat sufficient quantity okay and that is actually one of the key sort of principles of poisons you know that it um it is the quantity that makes the dose paracelsus said that way back in the 1400s so it is physically impossible to eat the amount of um ivy that's that that's going to cause you harm okay but okay. you can get contact dermatitis on it uh, by handling it um this is well ventilated because it's open-ended we've got lots of little portals through it but people grow this on house walls and it gets very little ventilation and at the back of it it produces white dust right. and that if you're sort of doing any maintenance on on the the ivy that dust if inhaled can bring on an asthma type attack wow so you'll but be very it, careful if you're removing it from a house then or something oh absolutely you? but okay. uh, bacchus uh, the greek or roman god of wine uh despite being immortal had to wear a crown of ivy 
but that meant that he could drink as much red wine as he wanted without getting a hangover. Okay, does that work? <laughs> I haven't tried that. Okay. I mean, if, if, people if can experiment listening. Yeah. Well, what about rhubarb? A lot, a lot of people come in here and think, what on earth is rhubarb doing in here? Yeah, you yeah, know, you... because rhubarb crumble, yeah, rhubarb ice cream, rhubarb infused gins. Yeah. That is because we eat the lovely red stems, not the leaves. The thing about poisons is a lot of people associate poison with death. Poison is actually a defence mechanism that a plant has. This hedge, for instance, is poisonous to an animal. It tastes awful. Animal gives up and goes somewhere else. That's how it survives. Yeah. Next level up in the poison hierarchy are plants that will burn, uh, like caustically. You know, animal, or indeed a, a silly human, if they start chewing on a rhubarb leaf, the two compounds in there would mix together. Right. They would burn the mouth, the throat, and the gums, and the gullet. And if a large enough quantity of rhubarb leaves were consumed, then it's going to kill. Is that right? But we're talking about that much. So I would have to eat about yeah. <laughs> 20 so or 30 leaves. You'd have to be pretty keen. Well, he had the thing. In the early stages of World War One. Uh, it was about 20-odd people did die as a result of eating rhubarb leaves. Really? Because the government was concerned about food stocks in Britain running out. Wanted people to make the most of everything they had in their gardens, in their allotments. And one of the recommendations that they put out into this leaflet... Um, was that the rhubarb leaf would make a fantastic replacement for cabbage or spinach. Because it looks innocent, you know, as far as the leaf can look. Absolutely, yes. It looks innocent. So the act of boiling it was washing out one of the two components, so people weren't getting that burning sensation to indicate something was wrong. However, it was the nastier the two substances that remained, which is called oxalic acid. Tell you how nasty it is, you'll find it in certain latex paint strippers. Um, it's used to degrease engine components, and our team leader, ex-merchant navy, well, they used to use it on the rusty old ships. Wow! So it mixes with the calcium in your bloodstream and makes uh, uh, calcium oxalate. That's kidney stones to you and me. And it was about twenty odd people died. Wow! Government realised their mistake, withdrew the leaflets, put them into storage, probably meaning to do something after the war ended, which is understandable. However, <laughs> they forgot. World War Two came around. Government was concerned about food stocks in Britain running out, want people to make the most in their gardens, etc., etc. They reissued the leaflets without any editing. It was only when the death started coming back in. Oh, God. They realised just death what a Death by typo, yeah. basically. So here's the thing. All gardeners will know you cut the rhubarb leaf off and uh, then snap it off at the base. You don't take snap it off at the base and then take it all down to the kitchen because if you do, the poisons, if you like, from the rhubarb leaf will migrate back down into oh, the I didn't know that. Okay. Never pick rhubarb as well after a frost. Same thing. Poisons. It, it, yeah, it reabsorbs. The plant thinks it's dying, so it withdraws, and that oxalic acid will go down into the uh, into the stem. Wow. Because I've got rhubarb growing next to my pond. Because I was, I wanted to get gunnera. Oh yeah. That goes a bit too. That goes a bit too. I love it, but it goes bonkers. I thought, oh, rhubarb's a nice little. I'll keep an eye on it. Well, that, that, that's, that's perfectly harmless. I mean, yeah. uh, I'm making some uh, rhubarb wine and some rhubarb beer at the moment. Rhubarb beer? Oh, yes. Oh, we should have done sampling during this. This might be a little bit early, but <laughs> never, it's five o'clock somewhere. Um, well, I see there is quite a few plants in here that have been used in the past uh, to make primitive beers. Yeah. <laughs> is that the other, That's a side hustle, is it, Ray? You're, uh, well, you, <laughs> you know, I mean... You get nettle beer, can't you, and things like you that? You can. Yeah. You nettle soup, and yeah. they also used to use it as the, for the fibres. Yeah. Um... But in the 1500s in Germany, they brought in the Bavarian beer laws, which said you could only make beer with malt, barley and hops. Okay. Prior to that, people weren't using hops. They were using all sorts of other types of herbage to act as a bittering agent and a bactericide. And one of them is mugwort. 
okay. a fairly harmless uh, plant, but we've got uh, absinthe, which is its, not absinthe, uh, wormwood, which yep. is, if you like, it's its cousin. Uh, that was used to make absinthe. Right, of course. It, both plants contain the same sort of compounds, the thujone, uh, which is an oil, which is supposed to be slightly psychoactive. Um, but mugwort is also used, uh, people dry it, they smoke it, make a tea with it, um, or I made some mugwort beer. Right. And uh, mugwort is, is a one that's favoured by witches um, because <laughs> it does um, facilitate uh, dream working. Wow. It's slightly uh, psychoactive then. It's sort of giving you some funky dreams. In, uh, well, we have in a one further down, which is uh, called henbane, which is in the same family as belladonna which is deadly nightshade and um, that was used uh, to make beer in fact in Germany Henbein is called Pilsenkraut and that is where the Pilsner comes from Pilsen ah. so that, that was used to, to make beer so you, you, you do get a beer which is you know four five six percent proof but you're also getting the active compounds which is called hyacinine in the uh, uh, from the, the Henbein so beer that gets you drunk and a, and a little bit, a bit, a little a bit, bit high. <laughs> but it, apparently also it makes you thirsty as well. Ah. <laughs> because high scene, those sort of alkaloids actually dry your saliva out, which is why they use medicinally for that purpose. So ah. basically it's put into beer. It's like the old barman's trick about putting peanuts or, or yeah, potatoes yeah, 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 on yeah. the bar to get people thirsty. <laughs> wow. So there's one or two nettles here. Yeah. Are they in, have they creeped their way in or have you... Have <coughs> no, you they're deliberately in They're deliberately in. Okay. So a nettle's actually a venomous plant rather than a poisonous plant. One of my pet hates is when people mix us up, but I'll let you explain the difference. But I, I <coughs> really don't like when people say poisonous snakes because like, there are no poisonous That's snakes. That's right, yes. They're all venomous. But yes. go on, I'll let you... So the venomous just means in a bit like the, um, the giant hogweed that it, it, uh, the toxin goes in through the surface, surface of your skin. Okay. Hence the similarity to, to a, a snake bite. Okay. Um, so just like uh, the giant hogweed, uh, the stem has a very sort of white silvery sheen to it there. You can see it, yeah, so yeah, those yeah. are the, the, like the silicon fibres. And again, the hollow, and they'll snap, and then they'll inject your skin with a whole cocktail of chemicals. Three acids, which is formic acid, that's what ants bite into that prey. Tartaric acid used in cooking. And oxalic acid, the pain strip and oxalic acid. So the thing is, it's only a small amount of acid, so it really only should be a small amount of pain. But the plant, despite it being a weed, has a very clever strategy for bigging itself up. You get three neurotransmitters. So first of all, you get histamine. That means you're itching. And when you're itching, you scratch that itch. And what you're actually doing is you're actually spreading the toxin around underneath the surface of your skin. You're actually activating a lot more nerve endings, which are then sensitised to an even greater degree by acetylcholine and, believe it or not, serotonin, normally the happy hormone. Yeah. But not in this case. So they act as a transformer to ramp up that pain. So that's why it's much more painful and itchy than it really should be. So you should avoid itching if you can help it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. We have docking leaves in here. We always say, what is it you look out for when you've been stung by a nettle out in the countryside? Docking leaves. Well, we got docking leaves in here, not because they're an antidote to the venomous nettle plant, but because they're poisonous in their own right. Oh, no. <laughs> the docking leaf has exactly the same pain-stripping, engine oil-degreasing oxalic acid you find in rhubarb leaves and in nettle stings. So we used to take great delight in poo-pooing the ideas that you rub a docking leaf into your skin and it, it gets rid of it. It's nothing more than the coolant sap evaporating from your skin. So it's complete might, rubbish, is it? You might as well just whip a wet lettuce leaf out of your packed lunch and slap that on. <laughs> okay. 
However, there's people who've done a lot of research into this. And it turns out that that old wives' tale maybe had something going to it after all. Oh, okay. Because they reckon that it does have something in the, the leaf which actually switches off the neurotransmitters. So it reduces the pain um, because it's reducing the amplifying effect. Okay, so it, is, it might be worth doing then? It, it might be worth it. Okay. Yeah, because we used to say, wait till you get home, take some antihistamine to reduce the itch, and then uh, neutralise the acid with a, a, maybe a little bit of alkali, baking soda, or if you haven't got any, a bit of diluted toothpaste. Okay. They'll, they'll probably do as, just as well, but, you know, the dock and leaf, if you like, has sort of come full circle from sort of, <laughs> sort of ridiculing the idea, or at least me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, to you know, people who've done a lot of research. It's had a complicated history, yeah. the poor docking leaf. Yeah. Um, you've, you've got to have a favourite. It might be an impossible task with all these different plants, but is there a favourite for you? Yes, uh, my favourite out of those is is one of the nightshades. Okay. Um, now we have three um, nightshades in here. Um, we have the deadly nightshade, okay. we have the woody nightshade, or bittersweet as it's called. Um, but this one, which is in full leaf, is a Russian nightshade or Siberian nightshade, Scopulia carniolica. There it is there. So as the name implies, it's a plant that's from a much cooler climate, which is why this one's already flowered and some of them are starting to produce the berries. Yeah. Because for this plant, this is already late summer. It's a good three or four months ahead of our native British species of nightshades. But all nightshades contain the same three tropian alkaloids, which is atropine that you'll find in the deadly nightshade, uh, hyacinine in the henbane um, and in this one hyacine oscopolamine as it's called in America. Uh, hyacine again is a very useful drug in its um, in small controlled doses. Um, it, uh, it's used in IBS treatment, it's used in travel sickness pills but unfortunately scopolamine has a darker side to it, or hyacine. Uh, back in the 1900s, and I kid you not, it was a, a doctor house over in America, discovered that people under the influence of hyacinth or scopolamine, they actually lost all sort of free will. It puts you into like a twilight sleep. Wow. So uh, you're fully awake. It's just you can't remember a thing about it because it stops your, your brain stops forming memories whilst under the influence of this. But you're also very suggestible. And you say things... That, that you probably imagine, which is why it wasn't very successful as, as a, um, a truth serum, given to spies during the Cold War as well to get them to spill the beans. Um, but the darker side to it is, because it's like a zombie drug, it's also used in cases of sexual assaults. Wow. It's also used in robbery against the person because they're tricked into drinking this, and then the next thing you know, you know you're being free, given away freely your credit card details, your PIN number, your house keys, car keys. One young Parisian actually gave the thieves a hand cleaning his own flat out in Paris. <laughs> oh, and he only realised that he was doing that when he watched his own CCTV. And there he was, the back of the, 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 the sofa, giving the thieves a hand with a very expensive Jesus. leather sofa, going down at the back of the Try white explaining van. that one in court. Hey, yeah. I helped the robbers rob me. Yeah. So we'll go down here. I'll yeah. show you a little bit of the uh, Tropa Belladonna. These are already just starting to come up here. So if you like, I'll show you the, the woody nightshade, which has some... Uh, ah, so that looks tiny more, flowers. That yeah. looks more familiar. Can I touch this one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't reach it. So this looks more familiar to me. Is this this is a native? We get this in the it UK. It is a native. Yes. Yeah. So okay. It, it's um, woody nightshade or bittersweet, or another common name for it is creeping nightshade because there you can see it's creeping it's off like a climber, the ivy hedge. Yeah. Yeah. So the problem with this is uh, the berries on this one are very small and red, but because it's a creeper, 
if it's climbing in amongst the fruit and hedge then you know people are going to pick these and harvest them in error and they're going to consume them uh, now the poison in this isn't as severe as those three tropian alkaloids i mentioned before it's actually called uh, solanine which is exactly the same poison that's in the green part of a green potato and that is no coincidence because potatoes tomatoes courgettes chili peppers and deadly nightshades are all members of the same family ah okay so these berries won't kill they will give what can maybe be politely called gastric distress okay <laughs> but the the favorite one which you know i'm getting round to now yeah we'll get there we'll get there. a trooper belladonna okay so a trooper um refers to one of the three three greek fates in mythology which was atropos so there was uh, the other two one um measured out the cloth i think she was called clotho actually and then there was another one who measured it and um uh, cut it out but then atropos um held the the cord the silver cord of life in one hand and the shears in the other so it was her that decided when your time was up which is actually really quite appropriate with belladonna because the berries on that plant are very large very black very shiny very juicy looking very poisonous but actually very cruelly sweet oh right so they taste nice yes oh um and it can take as few as four of those to kill a child wow 12 for an adult it's very rare an adults killed with those because the effects of the atropine kick in long before but with a child it's very easy for them to eat four so the first thing that would happen is it would dilate their pupils that wide that it would be very painful for them to see um, berry number two kicks in the heart rate goes up because that's what atropine does that's why it's used in cardiac crises if adrenaline doesn't work he'll be given a shot of atropine and atropine actually saved the lives of scripals father and daughter when they were attacked with novichok you know several years ago so that by this time the kids in severe distress not only that if there's anybody with them they will notice that the kids skin starts turning red and hot but then atropine will also start affecting uh, that perception so they'll be saying things uh, that aren't there they'll be blinded they'll be running into trees they'll be falling over a ravine so if the kid is on their own then that is unfortunately that's it curtains and the thing is it does speed the heart rate up that much that the two rhythms of the heart if you like get out of sync and that can cause heart failure wow so uh, but again it's used uh, by opticians in the past it's used in cases of astigmatism it's used um, in fact the troops in both gulf wars used to carry atropine epipens in case we have attacked by chemical nuclear or biological weapons uh, because those sort of weapons slow the heart rate down so they would sort of inject themselves that would speed the heart rate up and give them a chance to uh, uh, to survive. I think what's fascinating is how many of these are double-edged swords where they've got the deadly side but they've also got medicinal uses on the other side as well. Yeah that, that, that is correct yes yeah, yeah. It's, it's just the plants that we have in here this is the raw form if you like yeah because we have plants in here that were used to treat gout in the past yeah we have plants in here that we um, that are now used to treat cancers oh. different types of cancers or um, plants grown aboard sailing ships because the leaves are very high in vitamin C to ward oh. off scurvy but unfortunately you're getting all the other alkaloids in it as well so you're getting all the other poisons and that was what was killing people I, I guess it's important to note as well that it's the human interaction that makes them deadly not the plants themselves. that's right yeah. you you know these could be in your garden or wherever and you can enjoy them just don't touch or eat them and you should Absolutely. be okay yes yes indeed it is somebody said you know uh, animals can move plants can't plants just don't want to be eaten yeah 
Um, I would suggest that plants that are eaten, like lettuce, strawberries, they've probably had all the, the harmful uh, material bred out of them. Because they don't want to, yeah. This one uh, here, it, um, it says Wolfsbane. Okay. This is the one that we do want you to touch because you can actually absorb, you can absorb the aconite poison merely by touching it, by damp, uh, by handling the plant because your skin always has a, like a barrier of moisture, you, you sweat if you like, perspiration, and the poison, the aconite, will transfer transdermally and get into your blood skin. And in the past, it has killed people. Wow. Um, by merely by working amongst it. So when you're dealing with it, do you have to fully kind of PPE up, like you know? Certainly do with the the henbane. Yeah. Not the henbane, the the hogweed. The, yes. the gardeners come in. Yeah. And actually, it's really good sort of marketing opportunity because you know <laughs> they are in the full white uh, hazmat gear and the goggles and um, the gloves. It's incredible. I mean, I could I could listen to this all day. It's absolutely phenomenal. But if people want to come and visit. Um, it's just a case of coming to the Annick Garden. Come to the Annick Gardens, yes. And um, uh, the, the Poison Garden is included in your garden ticket price. Um, we do tours on the hour, on the half hour. There are occasions where we may have to close down, like we've got a sort of a, a wedding, which is up in the nearby arbour. So obviously when the bride and groom are up, they're exchanging their vows. The last thing they want to hear, whilst sort of seeing that I do, is hearing about horrible ways to die. So <laughs> out of a courtesy, we, we, we sort of put off it. That's very good of you all. Um, look, Ray, I appreciate you taking the time. This has been fantastic. Really enjoyed seeing all this. Good, good. That was Ray the Gardener. I love referring... I, 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 it's sort of like Game of Thrones, isn't it? You've got sort of a title. Uh, he was brilliant. He was so enthusiastic. What he didn't know about those plants wasn't worth knowing. He was so knowledgeable on all the ins and outs of those different species. If you've up that way, definitely worth a visit. It's also where a lot of Harry Potter was filmed in Annick Castle. If anyone is a big Potterhead, a lot of that was filmed there as well. So he was absolutely brilliant. In next week's episode, I'm joined by Indy Green, who's been on the pod before, a local birding legend, and he takes me out for a dawn chorus, something that I've never done before. We head into Sherwood Forest, and we go to try and listen for lots of unusual and rare birds at a very ungodly hour in the morning. Indy as ever was incredibly keen. I really enjoyed it and you'll find out what we found in next week's episode. If you remember, episodes are released every Tuesday each week. And if you can follow us on social media, that helps massively. Uh, we are on YouTube as well. All the episodes are uploaded to the YouTube channel, Wildlife Exposed TV. So if we do these via Zoom and you wanna watch the videos, you can find them there. If you want to see more of the stuff I do on YouTube, that's Jack Perks Wildlife Media. If you can't pay for anything on like buymeacoffee.com, one thing that you can do that does help me is subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's growing steadily. I'm on nearly 12,000 subscribers, which is starting to look respectable. And I'm thinking about shifting more to doing YouTube content, but I need more subscribers to sort of justify doing it if that makes sense so if you enjoy the pod you'll probably enjoy my youtube stuff as well so i would encourage you to head over there and subscribe to jack perks wildlife media and to wildlife exposed tv where we put extra bonus pod content this has been the bearded tits podcast i've been your host jack perks and i'll see you next tuesday cheers <laughs>